Hello, freaks, and welcome to episode six of Radical Research. I'm Jeff Wagner. And I am Hunter Ginn. Let's dive right into this. We're going back to the early 80s, and we're going to put ourselves into Milwaukee, Wisconsin, and we're setting our sights on a band called D. Kreutzen. D. Kreutzen is basically incorrect German plural for the crosses, but artistic license allows them to screw that up. Uh, this episode is a dissection and celebration of D. Kreutzen's activities from 1981 to 1992. Uh, in that 11-year span, they released several singles and four full-length albums, and we hold each of these albums in super high regard. In fact, I don't believe they did a single thing we dislike. Is that right? Spotless. Hunter and I can't imagine a musical life without this band in it. Uh, and I think we were, we were talking earlier that through this show or just through some of the recent listenings we've done to some of their stuff, we've kind of fallen back in love with them. But I feel like I do that every time I pull that's out a, an album. A, that's an annual thing for me. Dee Kreutzen was formed by four kids in 1981. Dan Kabinsky on vocals, Brian Eganis on guitar, Keith Brammer on bass, and Eric Tunison on drums. Through their entire recording life, the lineup never changed. Uh, and the evolution of their music, which you'll hear on the show, will underscore just what an incredible, unique musical life they lived. They started in 81. They had a demo by 1982. And then the Cows and Beer 7-inch from the same year. Great title on that one, Cows and Beer <laughs> from Milwaukee. Makes sense. Uh, the 7-inch was the only thing they ever released that was not on the label Touch and Go. It was on a label called Version Sound. Touch and Go, Hunter, were pretty huge back in the 80s in terms of uh, the music. for me they, in the early 90s, too. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, they um, they sort of like mediated um, the difference between the kind of indie rock that was emergent in the late 80s and early 90s. And then some of the seedier, noisier stuff that um, was promoted by labels like uh, Amphetamine Reptile out of Minneapolis. Mm -hmm. um, so you got this wide swath of bands you know, that um, that were just generally important for that era. So, yeah, bands like uh, Jesus Lizard, Laughing Hyenas, a huge fan of early Laughing Hyenas. Um, who uh, John Brandon came out of a negative approach, another really um, important uh, Midwest hardcore band that's um, that were contemporaries of Decroitson. Don Caballero is on uh, Touch and Go, Butthole Surfers, Brainiac, uh, a band who is um, near and dear to the hearts of one of our listeners, Mr. Forrest Pitts, hmm. uh, Big Black, Art Welder, list goes on and on. So, so knowing uh, Detroitson as we do, like it, it makes a lot of sense that they would be on this label, although, you know, they never really, I don't ever think they fit anywhere. They don't fit anywhere. Um, but no. they kind of fit everywhere. And I think, and I think it's uh, to touch and go's great credit that they stuck with the band through their entire discography, because certainly what touch and go got in 1984 from Detroitson was miles away from, you know, what, what that band would eventually become. And that kind of brings us to the first album because in hindsight, still, there is a huge amount of people out there that believe this to be the only important or worthwhile Decroitson album. Have you come across? I have a very, have a very vivid memory um, of the first Confessor uh, reunion show that we mm -hmm. went to, mm -hmm. and it was like we were out back. Um, was it the Lincoln? Yes, Lincoln Theater. Uh, yeah, we were out. We were out back at the Lincoln, and um, we were hanging out with, um, with Tom Haley. And, um, and Penn Rawlings from Breadwinner and Loincloth was there. Penn and Tom were in a really, really heated debate about uh, DeCroitzen. And, and Penn was saying that that band was basically dead after the first album, but that the, the first album was like maybe the greatest American hardcore record ever. He represents um, an opinion, though, that's really popular. So many people very, say that. I've, I've, come I've come across this opinion from numerous people over a long span of years now. 
it, it always baffles me. Uh, it's maybe just because I didn't come into them this way, but Tom Haley's right. Uh, <laughs> with all due respect <laughs> to Penn, uh, you know, Tom Haley's a really good friend of mine, certainly an acquaintance of yours. I don't know. Sure. And, and he, uh, he, I think Decroitson comes up probably 90% of the time that we hang out or talk on the phone. Yeah. Decroitson, Voivod and Confessor. And Trouble. And Trouble. Always. And, and lately a lot of Judas Priest, but of course that's going to happen. Sure. So the, the the first album had a huge impact in the hardcore scene. And that's, I think that's putting it lightly. Oh, it is. Absolutely. And there's a Thurston Moore quote somewhere like where he says that at one point, and I assume that he's talking about like 1984, mm-hmm. where uh, in his estimation, DeCroyson was the best band in the United States. Yep. Yep. Um, but like, so yeah, I mean, there's certainly a part of what was happening at that time. And I would, any, anyone who has any interest in American hardcore at all should read the book um, by the same title by Stephen Blush, who used to edit Seconds Magazine. Mm-hmm. It was a, a deep interview-oriented magazine. And there was also a film adaptation where a lot of the bands that were covered or interviewed. Just really interesting, puts a lot of it into perspective. But like Decroitson, again, very much a part of what was going on at the time. But to me, far more developed than most of the bands at that time. Sharper, more precise, but also more seething. Dan Kabinsky's vocals had more to do with what would emerge as grindcore later than a lot of the throaty, barky style of uh, vocals that you found in American hardcore at the time. I think it's pretty visionary stuff, and I'm, I'm interested to like kind of get into it when we start playing some clips. Not only so that the people who are unfamiliar can hear it, but just kind of to talk through some things, because there's a lot more nuance and texture to that music even than you'll, you would find in a lot of uh, hardcore at the time. Agreed. And I don't think either one of us are huge hardcore fans. You, you might have a little more appreciation. Yeah, I mean, I, I would call myself a, a casual hardcore fan. I mean, I, I, I love Minor Threat. I love uh, Black Flag up to Damaged and maybe a little beyond. I, you know, I'm into some of the D-beat stuff. But yeah, I, um, by and large, yeah, I would, I would call myself casual hardcore fan at best. But I think Decroitson's first album appeals to me and probably you as well, simply because they are that different. They, they did have enough different elements that signaled sort of where they might go. We're going to listen to two songs. Um, let's listen to Fighting first. This is a kind of, I guess, typical of the first album, and that is a very, very short song. It kind of goes without any, any further explanation. Let's listen to that right now. Okay, so fighting from the first Decroitson album. That, that has the distinction of being the second song we've played in its entirety. Uh, certainly <laughs> didn't, need to, didn't need to cut it because, uh, you know, it's pretty complete in its, in its shortness there. Before we get to the next one, actually, I do want to say something about that. I, I hear what you're saying about the grindcore thing that you had mentioned earlier about, about Dan's vocals. Yeah, Dan's vocals are, yeah, a mile away. Scathing. I mean, just completely scathing. They are, man. Yeah. Um, kind of a step beyond what even the most aggressive hardcore bands were doing at that time. The other thing I really, well, 
one of the many things I like about them at this stage is, you know, the super tight, vice tight rhythm section. I'd really say, and, and I'm, I, I feel remiss in saying this now, but like, actually my favorite hardcore record of all time is the first Bad Brains record. Oh, I was going to say, and I was going to compare it. I have that in my notes. This, this I, well, is like it's a record that I love super dearly. I don't even think about it hard. I don't think about it as anything. I just think about it as a record that I just love the hell out of. Yeah. And to me, only Bad Brains can compete with early Decroits and in terms of their tightness. And I mentioned the rhythm section and also Brian Eganis, who like, if you listen to fighting that in that very short period of time, you know, he's doing these little scraping things and these little sort of like things between the riffs, uh, these little accents or these little ideas, these sort of. I, mini, I, mini- I can't confirm this, but I'm betting that, uh, and, and it really kind of comes out later, but I'm betting that Eganis is a big killing joke fan. Um, oh, yeah. Cause I hear yeah. a lot of what you're talking about. Um, and, and kind of tying it back to early killing joke. There, there's a band, of course, that we will be talking about, not only a lot on radical research in general, but in this, in this show, and that's Voivod. And sure. we'll talk about them in context of Decroits in a little later because there are some definite intersections and some parallels. But both of those bands were heavily influenced by Killing Joke. Right. Uh, we're going to jump to Livewire, uh, another typical early Decroits and song very fast has all these components we've already talked about the thing i noticed about livewire and listening to it recently was it really has a lot of traits of early destruction the great german thrash band i hear it in you know the soloing the crazed quality uh, even some of the melodic choices uh, that brian makes are similar to what mike makes it might sound kind of crazy to like say this but you know i, I see parallels here and destruction were into some punk as well and some hardcore so oh absolutely yeah and so, so, you know, and here's the thing when punk's condemned Decroitson for going metal and they got a lot of crap for leaving this sound after this album in Maximum Rock and Roll and elsewhere. You know, it's just kind of always been a joke to me because there was always metal in Decroitson. So yes, they were hardcore, but am I I trying too hard to make the metal argument? Well, no. And I mean, honestly, like I think they go less metal after this album. Personally. This is true. And we'll get into that. Yeah. Um, But no, 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 no. I, I, I see the parallels too. I actually, um, Let's play it because, um, I, I mean, I don't know how many times I've heard the song, but I actually stumbled upon a thought um, re-listening to it for this uh, podcast, and we'll talk about that in a minute. Okay, sounds uh, great. So this is Early Destruction. No, wait. This is Early Decroits and Livewire. <laughs> struck me about that um the, like the initial section when uh when dan comes in the um 
Tunison sounds like he's channeling George Hurley from uh, Minutemen and Firehose. Oh, wow. Yeah, good one. He's already kind of subverting, you know, hardcore drumming expectations mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and doing something, you know, kind of proggy and, you know, I, I don't know. I, I, I'm glad you say that. I, I agree with you. I hadn't thought of that before, but it makes total sense. Each of these guys brought something really special to the band, and we'll, we'll isolate that very specifically in a little bit. I want to jump to All White. This is not only kind of a, a favorite on the album and you know, punks, hardcores, metalheads, indie rock people, whoever latched onto this album tends to always consider all white, one of the favorites. And I guess partly because it's a little bit different than everything else. Slow. <laughs> it's, it's slow. Yeah, it's slow. And it really signaled where they would go. Yeah, I mean, so like you, you already hear um, a band that's starting to um, to kind of rest itself from the I the I would maybe say the dogma of hardcore. I mean, hardcore was a, a very rule oriented scene. I would say, mm-hmm. wouldn't you agree? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, so I mean, I think you hear a band that's already kind of at odds creatively with that and, and its limitations. One, it's slow. Um, but um, I think we, we start to hear those really imaginative uh, guitar voicings. Dan Kabinsky starting to multi-track vocals and, and, and kind of play with that space. And throw effects um, on there. You know, yeah, yeah. Effects, yeah, yep. texture. Um, a lot of the things that would come to define their music um, a little later down the road, but already show a band still, you know, I think kind of in its infancy, maturing very, very quickly, very aggressively. Yep. And the album sounds really good. Like it doesn't sound some, I, I hate the word dated because I think dated is fine. Like I want 1969 yeah. albums to sound 1969, sure. I guess. But you know, a lot of hardcore albums don't really stand up in terms of the, the recording, you know. No, I mean, there's a, a lot of fidelity and separation in this recording. And yeah. um, so the, the, uh, the man who um, started Touch and Go, began, started as a fanzine and grew into a label, Corey Rusk, 
actually produced this and the the next Decroitson albums, and um and I think I think he does a fine job at it. I want to before we get to the second album and where they would take their music. Uh, how did you discover Decroitson? What was your entry? Because certainly you were quite young in '84 and even '86. <laughs> second album came out. What was what was your entry? Uh, Cement. Um, so uh, Mike Gitter, who was writing for Rip at the time. And among other publications, but I, um, I kind of identified him as a kindred spirit early on. Um, he introduced me to a lot of bands. Um, he introduced me to mind over four who I'm sure will be the subject of one of our podcasts later. Um, but, uh, anyway, yeah, he turned me on to cement and, um, the fourth album. Yes. The fourth album, uh, came out on, uh, touch and go in 1991. I got it in 1992. I, and we'll get in. We'll get into that album later, and 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 one of the songs that has a lot of meaning for me. Okay. Um, and it, like, I guess I come, and maybe one of the reasons that um, that I find myself so at odds with that argument about the first album is that I came into them so late. <laughs> right. And they were they were really you know they they were a special band to me um, at that time, but they were part of just that nebulous thing that was happening in the the early nineties, which I guess you would at this point call generally speaking alternative rock which has no specific style it refers to nothing in particular um it just is a a loose descriptor for any band that kind of fell outside of the mainstream yeah i I have a similar thought on my discovery of them and and, and in fact i don't come into them too much earlier than you i i discovered them in 87 i remember reading a small bit on them in some metal issue of cream magazine around like 1987 and it was in some black and white underground column of that particular magazine. I think maybe like Don Kay's column, maybe he had a column in there. Okay. Yeah. But you did have a column. Yeah. Yeah. That was it. And I was taken completely by the picture of the band and it was from the October file era and they're, they're in the weeds by some shed and it's like grain. Yeah, no, I know. That's actually the, um, I believe that's the same photo that is the um, profile picture for their um, Spotify page. Very photogenic band at that point. Oh, God. Very striking. I, absolutely. Totally agree. And I, I'm into bands having image if it makes sense and adds to the... Sure. Um, and they certainly had the aura. They had they had everything. But I was really just taken by the picture. There wasn't a whole lot of, I remember, musical description of them, or at least not enough to hang on to. But this was the October File era. So, you know, they had... The picture was grainy. Their hair was really big and strange. They looked really creepy and, and dark. Kind of in a different way than, say, Slayer or Possessed at that time, right? Right. And so... That picture and band name kind of stuck in my head that year. This is 87. Later that year, I go to Iowa City for college. I had been living in a small town. And amongst sort of the the, the many students and townies that I kind of met in that local music scene, uh, D. Croyton's name and their various I- Iowa City shows were spoken of in such reverent tones, man. You have no idea. And I would see, you know, D. Croyton shirts on some of these people from, from time to time. So I was further intrigued by this band that I kept kind of stumbling across in 87. So we're only a few hours away from Milwaukee. Decroitson had hit Iowa city a handful of times over the years, dating back to that first album. And, you know, the shows apparently were like legendary because, you know, people were talking about them years later. It seemed by 88 though, that like the century days album, the third album, mm-hmm. a lot of these people had turned their backs on Decroitson. in, in the intervening year, sometime in 87 or 88, I bought October file, just found it in a store, bought it, without actually having actually heard this band um, and totally fell in love with it. I mean, the first track on there is called man in the trees. It's the next song we're going to play. And it reminded me. It's such me a of, compelling cover too. 
It's a compelling cover that for the, those first chords in Man the Trees remind, reminded me of Voivod. And I was like, wow, this is crazy. And here's the thing about what you were saying about them kind of fitting into this alternative landscape, which alternative kind of meant real alternative back then. Right. Rather than alternative having become the mainstream. Yeah, I'm being codified. Yeah. Um, but, you know, so D. Kreutzen, and then along with like my other discoveries of that year, like No Means No and Melvin's in 89, 1990, for me, th- those, those bands expanded my musical palette in a huge way. I mean, they showed me new ways of being heavy and intricate and weird and intelligent. And Agreed. those are like core values for me. And it's something I love about the best metal also. So to me, the discovery of D. Kreutzen and then those other bands and just kind of expanded my musical world. And then, wow, did they cleave that hardcore audience in half with the second album? Um, I, yeah, I'd, I'd say half is uh, generous. <laughs> <laughs> the second album's called October File. Totally divided the people who loved the first album. I mean, some people grew to love it or liked it right away. A lot of people just completely dismissed the band, you know, right from the beginning of hearing the second album. The band had two years to mature. Uh, they grew as both musicians and people growing their hair out. Brian and Keith's hair were are especially notable. I mean, Keith's sideshow Bob hair, man. I love that stuff. And I'm going to post that all over the place when we, uh, air this. It's yeah, no, it's like a a non-comical sideshow Bob. Absolutely. And and, you know, and it showed that they didn't care to keep in line with the hardcore norms. Right. Absolutely. And where else could they they were, they were following their own muse the entire time. And where else could they take the first album? Like, where do you go with that? Right. Right. You just replicate it. Yeah. So instead of staying in line with all that stuff, uh, they followed their muse. And I, and I hear a little bit of the cure and REM coming into October file. Like I said, man in the trees was the first song I ever heard by them. And I was completely floored with how closely Brian's guitar chords echoed piggies from Voivod. Right. Well, let's listen to man in the trees. This is the opening song to 1986's October file.
So I think anybody familiar with Voivod will hear what we're talking about with the parallels. I think it's actually quite obvious. Dekreutzen were influenced on Voivod, um, and Voivod actually would influence Dekreutzen a little bit later. Uh, at this stage, Dekreutzen, as far as I have been able to read and, and research, didn't know about Voivod yet. And I don't even know if Voivod and, and, and especially Piggy were using such open diminished chords quite yet, at least not in that more open forum. I, yeah, I mean, this was Roar era, so it, it was all pretty noisy still for Voivod yet. Yeah, so the next year on Killing Technology, yeah. that's when Piggy would really, really open up his guitar vocabulary. Yeah, and I think the guys in Detroit and latched on to, to Voivod around either that album or Dimension. Right. If I'm, if I'm, my research is correct. Anyway. Your radical research? My, <laughs> I've been avoiding that for six shows. Thanks a lot, man. <laughs> so Voivod would later cover Man in the Trees, that very song, on a Detroit's and Tribute album called Lean Into It, also featured Brutal Truth and Napalm Death. Yeah, I was about to say, I think that the swath of artists on Lean Into It says a lot about Detroitson. Oh, God, yeah. Traces of the first album kind of show up uh, throughout October File. I think I hear it in Uncontrolled Passion and Imagine yes. a Light. But Imagine a Light especially has a lot more depth and twists and technicalities than anything uh, on that debut. Not to mention, I guess you probably heard the beefier, kind of textured sound. Yeah, and I mean, like Kabinsky on that track, he really takes that um, multi-tracked, highly textured vocal that we heard on All White to an entirely new region on, oh, yeah. on uh, Man in the Trees. Yeah, he's really being becoming crafty with it now. Right. Like and a lot, not a lot of overlapping like his, of, his, yeah. of, of his own tracks and, and, and kind of a more ghostly, phantasmagoric sort of... I, know, I think there's a ghostly vibe to this entire album. Yeah, yeah. Melancholy. Autumnal. And then there's uh, the slow-moving rock of It's Been So Long, which I think has this great groove. And in the snippet, uh, when they when they latch onto that groove, you'll hear what I'm saying. It's kind of somewhere between eight, 70s Aerosmith, uh, an acknowledged influence on the Just, band, and a huge. I'm a huge fan of the 70s era of that band. And what the most mid-paced hypnotic Samane stuff, maybe? Maybe. Yeah. Um, yeah. No. No. I, yeah. I could see. I mean, well, you think about kind of the guitar work on, especially like November Coming Fire. Mm-hmm. It's not. It's not a mile away from this. I don't think so either. Let's listen right. to It's Been So Long from yeah, October File. that's really the only appropriate response for this. Yeah. I love that song. You know, I, 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 I tend not to traffic in, um, in generalizations, but 
in a lot of hardcore and post-hardcore and alternative rock at this time, you don't get a lot of depth of groove. You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. It, it tends to be on the stiffer side. Yeah. And I think that that Aerosmith influence really kind of bears out in this song. Because oh, yeah. this, this is a legitimately beefy groove. And that section where they get the, when it comes back to the verse and they mute the guitar chords and they really kind of dig in their heels there, yeah. that is just, just plain like badass grooving. Absolutely. And that, I mean, it could have fit on rocks by Aerosmith or what does ZZ Top comparison be? Anytime I think about deep groove, I think about ZZ Top. So. Yeah, okay. Well, that's, 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 cool. that's fair enough. So amongst this October file album, really diverse album, you get a lot of different song types. I mean, you even have Cool Breeze, which was a bit of a nod to REM. At least I hear REM in that song. Oh, no, no, no. I'm, I, that song to me sounds like an homage to REM. Yeah, I'm not a big I fan like, of REM. I love the first four REM records. Yeah, I, I, I've yeah. tried. I'm not a huge fan, but I, I really appreciate the gesture in and amongst all this other dark and weird stuff too. That's Which that's, almost like, which kind of ties it back to the birds and 60s psychedelia too. Yeah. Oh, totally, totally. Um, and so amongst all this, we have Among the Ruins, which to me is, along with Man in the Trees, is probably one of the most metal songs on the album, at least in spots. And I think texturally and spir spiritually, it, it has a lot to do with, with metal. Just showing, also shows their incredible growth spurt from the first album. This is a bleak, kind of dank, creepy really song. In two years. Yeah, and I, and I always picture Dan howling from the depths of a musty cellar on this song. So let's listen like, to... Uh, like so. Yeah, let's listen to Among the Ruins. So we've talked about Dan's vocals a lot. I'm a huge fan across the entire discography. We've talked about Brian's guitar. Same goes for that. Uh, Eric's drumming. Uh, obviously, this guy is, you know, bringing something really, really cool to the Decroits and Table. But we haven't really talked about Keith Brammer that much, the bassist. And no. I think one thing I like about October Files so much is they really pumped up the bass. And 
I also like that he plays a Rickenbacker and you can tell he plays a Rickenbacker. He's one of these Rickenbacker. It sounds like a Rickenbacker. Yeah. It just sounds like a Rickenbacker. And he's, he sounds like he's in love with his Rickenbacker and sleeps with it at night. It's, <laughs> he's just one with this thing. And I, I've always thought this guy was real special uh, with, I don't know, some, some of the, the different sort of like, would it be fair to say like contrapuntal lines he does to what Brian's doing? Yeah. Well, I mean, it, and two, it kind of, it, it's an outgrowth of the model that was developed in some of, I guess, the more shadowy regions of uh, post-punk Britain. Thinking about The Cure, um, you mentioned them earlier, Joy Division, um, and also, uh, you know, a lot of, you know, what was going on in 4AD in the early and mid-80s, where the bass plays as um, prominent, but also as an important role melodically as the guitar does, Um, and where those roles are sometimes reversed and the, the guitars... Um, become you know, the, the vehicles for texture and, and the bass becomes sort of the melodic lead. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I think that De Kreutzen plays with that um, in, a, in really, really interesting ways and really also unpredictable ways. There's no formula to De Kreutzen. Right, and this is yet another comparison I like to make with Voivod. I, and that, I, probably the reason I love both bands so much is because <laughs> of the interplay between the bassist and the guitarist. Right, and, and that being so interesting and creative, and, and, and kind of and, sounding in terms of how they play off of each other, right? And it, and it, yeah, it, and it, I kept. It's funny, and I didn't mean to cut you off. That's right. Um, but I, I, as I often do, um, I, I think about um, yeah, Joe Carducci's um, book, uh, "Rock and the Pop Narcotic," mm-hmm. um, where he he kind of talks about for him like the platonic ideal of a rock band is you know three or four guys in a room. And the synergy that happens when they get together and they play, and what you just said, I think, um, hits the nail on the head. I mean, it's these guys in an in an active dialogue with each other, you know, responding to each other. You can hear them playing off of each other, yeah. and I, it's really, really special. Yeah, and having seen them live twice, kind of later in their career, but you would just—it was just amazing to watch. I guess we can talk about that more when we get to the Gone Away and Cement era, but. Yeah, they really had a special chemistry, one that, you know, like a band like Rush or Queen only has because these are the people that have to be in that band at that point. And only those four or three, as it were, with Rush, you know, can really make that happen. So so Detroitson is one of these bands where like each of the guys is so incredibly important to what's going on. So two years later, another two years, and we get a third album and it's highly textured, hypnotic, less aggressive. And even such songs like Elizabeth, I mean, it's bright and hopeful. Elizabeth is bright and hopeful. We haven't heard much of that yet from them. Elizabeth is, yeah. I, I think if D. Kreutzen has a hit, it's probably Elizabeth, right? Uh, yes, or Gone Away. Or go, yeah, or Gone, which is, yeah, it, we'll, we'll get to that. <laughs> and, over, and Over in the Edge, but we'll get to that one as well. Um, but yeah, I mean, as with every D. Kreutzen song, like, let's, let's keep on Elizabeth because I want to play that first. I love Dan's expulsion. Like to me, his passion, whether they're like, Oh no, he, he, uh, you hit it impassioned. Yeah. Whether they're hardcore or sort of what they were doing later on cement, like he's had this explosive joyous expulsion about his voice and with something a little more bright and positive, like Elizabeth, it's, it's pretty effective. You know, I, I really enjoy Elizabeth. And for me, the first time I heard this album, this song really stood out. I'm like, Oh wow. They're kind of going into some, some really brand new territory right here. So, Very much so. There's always this frantic anxiety to his voice too, though. Yeah, no, there's yeah, no, there's always an, an underpinning. 
with Dick Royson. Yeah, and then in this snippet of Elizabeth, we're going to hear Brian paralleling the vocal line. And, you know, again, we talk about chemistry. This is a, a really great example. He, he does these scraping kind of beautiful washes of chords to match Dan's singing. So let's check out Elizabeth. Okay, this isn't going to be any deep critique, but I just love that, man. I just love the joy and the beauty of that. And, and the fun it sounds like Dan and Brian are having there together. Yeah, no, they're, they're joined. And, I, you know, I know that that song and the, the whole album is the product of their own artistry and invention, but I can't help but think that, like, Butch Vig's entry into their world had something to do with, you know, with crafting that. Well, I think he came along at the right time for them. Yeah, yeah, I think I think so. Or you know, at the at the time, he was the right guy to to really um, uh, give contour and, and texture to their their music at the time. Right, and at the time, you know, I don't I don't mean this disparagingly, but at the time, he was just Butch Vig. But right. as we know, he went on. He to went on to he went he went on to some some other things. A little uh, little album called like, Nevermind, right? Right. <laughs> so and, yeah. Uh, it's super hard. Here, here's a little segue, though. This will, this will be fun. It's super hard to figure out what the hell Dan is singing. I don't know if you've ever noticed this about D. Kreutzen. They never printed the lyrics for any of the albums besides the first one. I think there are a few lines of each one on Century. And I have like, I've tried pretty feverishly to find lyrics online. Um, did, I've had little success. Did I ever tell you about the game Tom Haley and I played? No. Nah. Well, as we mentioned earlier, Tom Haley, good friend of ours um, and a huge D. Kreutzen fan, uh, we kind of noticed this about Dan. Like, wh what's he saying in, in, in Black Song or what's he saying in Lean Into It? And, like, we never really knew, you know? And like, we were like, why don't we like play a game where we try to guess what he's singing? <laughs> and we would just listen and type out sort of verbatim what we were hearing. And the nonsense lyrics that we came up with were just so funny. Um, maybe maybe uh, with Tom's permission, I'll, I'll post those on the blog part of our site. I think that'd be fun. Because who the hell knows what he's singing? I mean, I can make out maybe 5% of the, of the lyrics. Yeah, he's maybe. Milwaukee. He's, not, he's a native speaker, but... Yeah. Right. He's a very expressive voice, um, lacking in enunciation. <laughs> but that's and okay, that's man. He's perfectly. Oh, that's it's well, you know, it's even better because yeah, um, it, it takes on a more musical sort of character. 
And definitely uh, mysterious. We're less focused on what he's saying and, and, and instead focused on how he's saying it. The, well, the emotion. I mean, he's Present. a very emotional yeah. singer and it doesn't matter what he's singing. It's how he's singing it, as, as you say. We clearly love this guy's voice. I suppose we have a man crush on the guy's voice. Jeff Scott Soto, if you're listening. <laughs> 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 All right. So... Yeah, but I think it's a love or hate thing, especially when they get when Decroitz and the other guys, the musicians become, you know, more melodic and, and a little more towing the line to toward, you know, the alternative rock that was happening in their own yeah. way, of course. But I think for but Dan never really changed in, in, in a sense because he was always pretty scraping, no matter how melodic it's- he got. Yeah, I, yeah, but there's always, I mean, especially after the, I mean, obviously after the first record. I mean, there is a genuine tunefulness to his voice. There, there is, but it, but it's a different sort of tunefulness. It's something yeah. that, that I think always kept them at arm's length from like really huge success. I'll, I'll bet. Well, I think it's that same kind of tension that we were talking about earlier. There's that instability that kind of underpins everything that Decroitson does. Yeah. There's always that anxiety, no yeah. matter how joyful or melodic they. They get exactly exactly so i think i think his voice became love or hate for those who hate it you'll probably hate this next snippet i absolutely love this i, I know you do too it's from a song called the bone and it's got some of the best dan he's just like letting himself go completely on this and you'll hear what we mean <laughs> we talked about like laughing and metal on the disharmonic show this is kind of just i wouldn't even call it laughing i call it this kind of maniacal yeah hysteria hysteria. hysteria uh if you don't like him you know we apologize if we had any sympathy for you but we don't actually uh, we don't apologize <laughs> so this is the bone together. this is the bone from 1988's century days Yeah, just you can tell how unscripted that was. Yeah, um, I can just see him in the vocal booth. Maybe he's done you know three or four takes. I don't know, but I I can just hear the inspiration in him. Maybe Butch Vig goes, eh, you know those first few takes were a little stiff. Um, just <laughs> you know, let's just roll tape and see what happens. And that is what happens. I love how free yeah. and unhinged he sounds. Just free free is the perfect word, man. He just sounds completely liberated. Yeah. Um, he's just, yeah, he's just chasing something. And we've talked a lot about these songs so far. What about Century Days as a whole? What, where do you put that in the Decroits and discography and, and what does it mean to you? It's kind of funny. Like before we did this, um, I really always thought Century Days um, stood in the shadows of October File and Cement. Yeah. Um, but going back, I, I really think that, um, that it's in line with both of those in terms of, of its its value to, to me personally those other two albums um i heard both of them before i heard century days mm. so i guess it just kind of suffered um from its context in my life um but going back to it um with you know with fresh ears and isolating it 
it's just a super, super special record. Um, and it, it brings with it this kind of wistfulness that, um, that for me kind of characterizes cement. It's, it's, it's beautiful. It's, it's melancholy, but it's also joyful. I mean, it kind of, I don't know. I feel like I'm, I'm getting into um, Norman Rockwell territory here. Um, but I mean, it, it is, it's, like, it's, it's this kind of like mutual celebration of, you know, all the things that make us human and, and that we all go through in life. Um, and I, it, it, it embraces all those things. I echo you 100%. Um, in fact, even to the, to the point of like it being a little bit behind October file and cement, I still think it is for me because one weird phenomena about this album that remains to this day, cause I've, I've now been with this album 30 years dates, dates wow. me like hell, but, uh, <laughs> it's the truth. And, and the first five songs, man, all five of those, no matter how much I've listened to this album, they all kind of mesh together for me. It's only yeah, with Elizabeth. Yeah, it's okay. You, you hear it too then. I do. It's only with Elizabeth and like later on, the, the Bone, Bitch Magnet, Stomp, Slow, like all those have their own personality to me. Uh, even the, the bonus tracks, there, there's two songs at the end of this that kind of weren't on the, on the vinyl. I never really consider them part of it because I got this first on vinyl. Um, but there's a song called Dream Sky, which mm. is incredibly psychedelic and hypnotic. And then there's a song called Halloween. But it is creepy as hell and, and super convincing. And, and it's based on John Carpenter's Halloween theme. Exactly. And it works really well. The final song on Century Days, if we're talking about, say, Century Days proper, the way you know they kind of first envisioned it, it ends with a song called Number Three. And this thing's just a just a beautiful piece of atmosphere. Yeah, it is. But I love the way this song mutates.
beginning of that, it always sounds like like children on a carousel to me. And then like not long after, like Pennywise shows up and he's like looking for blood. Mm. It that that's thing sound it like turns so ominous so quickly for me. Yeah. I love that. Yeah. Is it Dan doing that or is it I think there's some subtleties. Oh no, everything no 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 no. It's everything. Well it it like it kind of starts when Dan comes in. Yeah. But no, the, the, the entire tone shifts. Yeah. Really special song that kind of closes out century days. And I, I think it's worth noting at this point, there's a guy named Richard Cole that did pretty much all the artwork for D Kreutzen, uh, from the cows and beer seven inch. I believe that's to his credit, uh, up to cement. I love and, the cover art on the first record too. Oh, I love, yeah. I, I pretty much love all their cover art. Yeah, it had a very so. MC Escher quality to it. Yes. Maybe, maybe a more surrealistic, less, less boxed in Escher. Uh, Escher was so geometric and this guy is too, but I think there's just a more LSD kind of quality to his work. Yeah. Um, But again, and you know, we talk about the band and sort of like everything, the chemistry, the chemistry they had and the kind of cool, smooth, but quick evolution, you know, all the different steps they took. And I think the artwork kind of ties it in all nicely as well. This is another thing I find important in a band that I love is like, you know, how, how unified is, is the total picture, right? Yeah. Richard Cole, wherever you are, thank you for your service. Thank you, sir. So between 1988 and 1991, D. Kreutzen did a couple EPs. And this was, this was a time when I, th- I feel like their popularity is kind of waning a little bit. Right. But we got the Gone Away EP, which was basically the title track, Gone Away, something that was brand new. And the other new contribution uh, on this EP was Seasons of Wither, which is a cover of the Aerosmith song from Get Your Wings. Check it out. Please buy it. I would, yeah, I would urge anyone curious to check it out. I like it very nearly as much as the Aerosmith. Oh, yeah. I love the Aerosmith wow. one. And, and you know what? This is a weird cover where, or a weird example of a cover where they don't change it that much. No, they stay pretty true. Yeah, they, it stays really true, but I think it works so well. I Usually, I, I want a band to kind of really mess with a cover if they're going to Well, bother. I think that like the sort of you know essential differences um, between Dick Royston and Aerosmith uh, manifest in that. It's like they don't have to play with it that much um, because, you know, the, the qualities that are intrinsic in DeCroitzen are, are so different from Aerosmith mm. um, that, that it, it somehow they're able to play this faithful cover. But then the character of DeCroitzen comes, it, it, it somehow triumphs over that. For sure. I, I just also like the, the very sort of obvious thing where we're influenced by early Aerosmith, <laughs> you know, <laughs> That's always going to go far with me because I just the the more the older I get, the more I realize how great '70s Aerosmith really was. Super badass. We are not going to talk about how the later stuff was so terrible. We don't we don't need to. But man, yeah, that so so I I love any any good sort of nod to early Aerosmith the way um, D. Kreutzen did it. Uh, the other stuff on Gone Away was just five live tracks. They were always really good live and. Um, Tellingly, nothing from the first album, just stuff from the, uh, the, other, the other two that had come out. Keep it moving. Time. Yeah, keep it moving. Exactly. You know what was interesting, too? I was going to mention this later. I'll mention it now. When they played live, they would always be touring for, say, a certain album, and they would play a bunch of new songs that hadn't yet been recorded. So you talk about always keeping it moving. They were like playing sets that the audience didn't know half of. Always a really cool element that comes in later to our discussion. And I, and I think I'll wait 
uh, till we get to the cement. Era. I think so. Yeah, yeah, I think so. Yeah, gone away, dude. We're dancing around it. This song, maybe, maybe my favorite Decroitson song. Maybe mine as well. I, yeah. What do you want to say about it? You just want to play it? Let's play it. And yeah, I honestly like. There's only so much I can say about it. Fair enough. That it, that it doesn't say for itself. I respect but there's one that. thing I'll say about it when we get done playing it. And, okay. And maybe we can talk about that. This is going away. Yeah, you can hear how special that song is. And I think, I'm sure most people noticed that the edit there is not exactly seamless. But I wanted, to, pre- yeah. I wanted to present the first part, the kind of main core of Gone Away. And then also the guitar solo. That short guitar solo by Brian is amazing. quite, quite beautiful. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, this song is something of an obsession for me. I love that really um, like mechanized sort of an industrial drum intro. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. it, it sets a tone um, and you expect something else to, I, at least the first time I heard it, I expected something else to follow. And then those cascading raindrop guitars come in. I, th- this is Dan um, at his most inspired for me. Mm-hmm. He's, he's beautiful. He's lyrical, maniacal. All those, all, all those olds, man. <laughs> AL behind it. He's doing it. And I and I find the the rhythm section just uh, it, it transfixes me. Like this is one song, one of those really special songs where I just kind of stand back and I get kind of not teary, but just really grateful that it exists. Sure. I'm like in its presence, you know what I mean? It's yeah. really special. Yeah. Um, I had a really funny moment with this song a few months ago, um, maybe more than a few months. Ago. It was fairly recently, but and I, and I think you would agree with me that when you turn your iTunes on shuffle and you just 
go through your collection, mm-hmm. it, um, it, it kind of recontextualizes things yeah. and it, it makes it harder to identify things, but it also makes you think about songs that, you know, that are familiar to you in new ways. And this song came on and I remember thinking that um, it reminded me somehow of beyond dawn or that oh. I could at least see like a, 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 you know, an adventurous Norwegian band covering that song. Yeah, either the pity love or uh, revelry. Yeah yeah yeah, like, yeah, 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 or yeah, exactly. Really good. I remember you texting me about that, and I was kind of glad to, that you made that connection. Yeah, yeah. I I got nothing else to say that you haven't already, yeah. or that the, the song itself doesn't. Very, very. I think very the song stuff. itself says everything. Yeah, beautiful stuff. Also, around this time, the band released a seven inch uh, that it was two covers. It was a wire cover of Pink Flag. And it was a cover of the Germs Land of Treason. Are you a Wire fan? Yeah, um, especially of like uh, 154 and yeah. um, and Cheers Missing. Yeah, I, and and I'm really a big fan of of Colin Newman. Um, love the guitar work. Love the. I mean, they're just sort of really interesting kind of um, art punk, art rock band. Uh, Pink Flag is like. It's rock music stripped to its absolute bare essentials. Um, yeah, 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 it's weird. I, I gotta, I gotta say, in this point, I, I have that seven inch. I've had it since it came out, and I haven't been still been able to find any reliable information on exactly when it was recorded in their history. It doesn't sound to me like something that was super early, but no. the choice of tracks seems like it could have been between October File and Century Days. I'm sure that information's out there. I probably just got lost in the wires and Googles of the internets and, uh, you know, couldn't find it. But regardless, man, the, the version of Land of Treason by the Germs is really telling because it is a stronger, tighter. Yeah, more muscular. Than, more muscular than they were, I think, up to this point. So it might have been truly circa 1990 or whenever it came out. But I'm not a big fan of the Germs. I think Darby Crash's voice is crap. You know, with yeah, not respect. a fan either. With all due respect, it's not my kind of thing. My two, my favorite germ songs are literally covers by Decroydson and Brutal Truth. <laughs> well, there you go. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, and right, I don't have much more to say about the germs. I, I just didn't know. <laughs> but but this version of Land of Treason is killer, and like you know, it goes, it kind of brings back the seething hardcore of the early days. It brings the metal back, in, in case we forgot that they had that aspect to them. It just rages. I think it's so good, and I. We'd like to play it for you. Why don't we? Why don't we? That sounds like a peachy, what a, peachy what a idea. Fe- what a fetching idea, Mr. Wagner. Peachy idea from the guy from the peach state. Isn't that great? <laughs> All right, hey, Land hey, of Treason. Anybody listening, South Carolina produces better peaches than Georgia. Oh. Uh, yeah. So you're, you admit this. I mean, as a, as a Georgia boy, I, I you know, yeah, happily admit that. All right. All you, all you minions people. in Georgia. I just betrayed my own people, man. All you minions in Georgia, right to Hunter. <laughs> Fire your hate mail at him. Throw your peaches at his car next time you see him in Savannah. Eat a peach. Eat a peach. Eat a South Carolina peach. Um, Anyway, (laughs) (laughs) we, we digress. This is Land of Treason.
it was recorded in the early nineties, I think it's fair to say that Dan's lost none of its potency, right? <laughs> totally. I mean, he, he sounds like youthful Dan. Yeah. Yeah, totally. But the band just sounds beefier and, and just vice tight, just really, really fired up. Maybe kind of rediscovering their love of early hardcore, but yeah, just agreed, uh, sir. Agreed. Yeah. And you know, and, and from here they go on to do, I don't think they, they knew it, but it was going to be their final album cement. And this really had almost, this really broke the lines with uh, their hardcore past. I think uh, not that you got a lot of it on century days, but they just keep going a little bit further. They still, no, have, they, they, they go further on, on this one. I and mean, they still have Butch big and it's cleaner. Uh, it's no less atmospheric for that, but it's just cleaner, sharper. Yeah. And I mean, it's funny. He produced this record around the same time that he produced the first Smashing Pumpkins record, Gish, yep. and also Nevermind. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, yeah. Cool resume. Yeah, clean, cleaner is a good word, um, but they really um, kind of indulged their their lyrical side on this record. Um, and we'll we'll play one song in particular that um, that confirms that. I think. Yeah, I remember when this album came out, and um, I was hanging around with a lot of the. Iowa city hardcores and townies and various people of you know, various musical backgrounds and, and stuff. But so many people I remember would like come into the house that I was living in and, you know, they'd hear whatever we were playing in our respective rooms. And like I, I, more than a handful of people said like, Oh, this sounds like Jane's addiction. <laughs> and I, I never heard that, but I guess Perry, Perry and Dan, I guess that's it from a distance. I guess that's it. But you know, what was funny is like, you know, fast forward many, many years to about three days ago and I'm putting together some snippets and Adrian's sitting here, my wife. And she's like, she'd really, she'd heard a little bit of Decroitson, but it didn't really kind of stick with her. And she goes, wow, that sounds like Jane's addiction. I'm like, no, you <laughs> not say that. So, but God damn, there must be something there, you know? Yeah, no, there, there's something there. And I think it's probably probably Dan and Perry, and that's probably about it. She she was also, of course, smart enough to to say that you know, oh, the guitars sound nothing like Jane's Addiction. I was like, well, thank you for that. Um, <laughs> but you know, it's it's almost like saying Kiss sounds like Wasp. You know, Kiss came first. You've right. got it backwards. I mean, D. Kreutzen was doing this before Jane's Addiction. With all respect, due respect to Jane's, this is D. Kreutzen we're talking about. So, Cement, man, a full, complete, nearly perfect album. Their slickest, most streamlined. Let's listen to the opening track, Wish.
Eric Tunison taking us out of that one. Thank you, Mr. Tunison. God, I love his drumming. You know, okay, I got to admit something then. Uh, with all that talk about Jane's addiction and everything I said, I'm not too proud to admit that as soon as we started listening to that snippet, that bouncier, kind of brighter, more buoyant <laughs> rhythm section kind of right. sells it to me that like, yeah, maybe maybe that was just sort of like going around at the time, right? Oh, absolutely. And it's not funk. Yeah. I don't no. want to ever yeah, say no, that. No, 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 but no, that no. Vi- that was in the air. But maybe a, like more, a more elastic uh, kind of approach to rhythm. Sure. Yeah, it was in the air at the time. Sort of, everything loosened up, you know, in the early 90s. Yeah. Um, I mean, I mean, talking about Voivod, I mean, look at, you know, Nothing Face to Angel Rat. Yeah. I mean, there was a lot of groove in the early 90s. Um, yeah, and I, 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 I've, that's not the first time I've really even thought of Angel Rat in context of Cement. And I'm not sure that's even what you're saying, but I, I hear some parallels to where, where each band would go with their sound. This stuff was probably a little more fun to play live. It's uh, it's just got that live room sound. You know, the momentum is just a little bit quicker, lighter in the loafers. <laughs> <laughs> did I really say that? Anyway, I think you did. I think I did. Okay, I'll I'll I'll, I'll own it like a champ. <laughs> I'll own it like a fucking champ. Yeah, I mean, God, I I we could do a whole podcast about cement. I think we love it that much. Yeah, I um. I struggle with it. Sometimes it's my favorite, sometimes October file, but I haven't, it, it, on those days when I say it's my favorite, I, I say that um, without apology. It is. This a, is the springtime album. This is the one I, when I, when I, yeah. I'll talk to Haley or text Tom Haley and it'll be like, Oh, it's springtime time for cement. And I think you and I have done that as well. It just has. I, mean, I remember this. us driving up to somewhere or driving around. Um, I, came up to Stewart to visit you. And I remember it was like, I think it was when I lived in Winston and it was March or April or something. And we were driving around listening to over in the edge, which we will play in a bit. Yeah. And just thinking like, man, this is spring in full bloom. Just like that time we were uh, driving and we, we, we popped in into the pandemonium. And then as much as we love that album, we took it right out. Cause we were like, it is too beautiful outside. Yeah. The pandemonium. Tom G warrior was frowning somewhere. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh my God. So, uh, one song on cement that I find really special is deep space. I have a very special connection to this song. So I get, let's see how old I, I was 13 when I got cement. So I kind of got into music like seriously as a collector, um, when I was 12 and I got into to death metal and to, for lack of a better term, alternative rock, indie rock, whatever you want to call it, at the same time. And I, I, would, I, I pursued both with uh, equal vigor. But I was really ADD at the time. So I would buy records and I'd listen to them. But I was so new to everything that like, the journey was almost more interesting to me than like, the acquisition itself. So I'd mm-hmm. listen to the album for a week and was like, okay, well, what's next? You know, there's this entire world waiting for me. I got to move on to something. Mm-hmm. But one of the fun things about it is like at that age, you know, you're pretty much limited financially to an allowance or whatever, you know, little chore work you could pick up here and there. So I would always run out of money and inevitably I would return to these records that were sitting around my room. And so um, this is the, kind of the end of the summer of 1993 and I, I was going to switch schools and I was really bummed out about it. I was leaving all my friends. Um, I didn't really know what to expect. And 
anyway, I um, was just rifling through cassettes and I found cement there. I was like, let me throw this on. And uh, I put it on the second side and I played deep space mm. and it may, it was like uh, a blanket just like coming over me and comforting me and hugging me and saying, it's going to be all right. Yeah. And um, I, anytime I listen to this, this um, song, I'm taken back there. I mean, you know, I mean, obviously um, memory is a very, very um, important component of our, our listening or, our, you know, revisiting records, sure. but it, it's, it's amazing to me how 25 years later, this song can still have such a tug on me. Um, I can see why. I think people will hear why. Thanks for sharing that. And let's listen to a little bit of Deep Space. We kind of catch it in the second verse and we'll play the solo as well. Um, the solo to me always sounded yeah. like it was played on this warm, hollow body guitar. I think that's the blanket you're talking about. Yeah, I think so. This is Deep Space. but I it that's a definitely a woodwind man you mean you mean that's not that whole section I was referring to as a hollow body guitar solo is not I'm pretty sure that's a that's a flute listening to it I I think maybe um what we identified as a guitar solo might actually be a flute solo a very deep breathy flute solo yeah like a like more of a baritone flute or a bass flute yeah yeah bass bass flute yeah I mean I can see I can hear that now that makes a whole ton of sense. Thank you for enlightening me. <laughs> I, that, this is, yeah, this is active enlightenment because I'm, before we played it, I was, I don't know. Anyway. I love that we're talking about the flute in context of a band who several years before this did fighting. <laughs> I mean, that's great. I love that Deep Space and fighting is the same band, the same guys, the same evolution. Uh, pretty wonderful. I tell you, you man. You that, know what's that, funny um, about the flute? Dude, you know what's funny about the flute thing? Our track record for our batting average for flute identification is just the pit, <laughs> the pits. You and I are baseball fans, man. We know, we know the, the power of stats. And I don't think I've ever heard the words flute identification <laughs> together. <laughs> Only here in radical research. It's a, it's a thing somewhere apparently. But yeah, yeah. In my here. world, my, my screwed up world. <laughs> but you know, but what, what I was going to say about that was because um, show number three, we featured a band called Nidralog and we identified a part in one of the songs we played as being flute. And while that band did use a lot of flute, I heard from Colin Goldring himself, one of the main drivers in Nidralog. He told me that, well, in fact, it was a recorder, you know, and um, okay. I was like, thank you, sir. 
Thanks for listening. Yeah. And we got it wrong. So we got it. We got we got it wrong on on a fluid identification again. So we got it right with uh, Horace C. Arnold, though. We I did. Think. We did. Yeah. Uh, and by extension, Gautique. We know that's a lot yes. of fluid on that one. A lot of fluid. Enough fluid to choke a very large horse. <laughs> so anyway, <laughs> we've taken deep spaces about as far as we can. There's a. I think every song on Cement is great. Again, as we mentioned earlier in the in the episode, I don't think there's a thing Detroit's never did that we disapprove of. One of the most special songs for me has always been "Over and the Edge." Oh yeah. I don't know what that means, but as we as we've learned, meaning in Detroit's and lyrics is a nebulous and wonderful, wonderfully nebulous thing. But this song, man, when they get into the chorus, this is another one like Elizabeth or Gone Away where I'm like... Dan makes this. Absolutely. This is one of the greatest choruses in Detroit's in history. Ah. One of my very favorites. And this is another reason I think I equate this album with Springtime. Yeah, let's get to it, man. All I'm, right. I'm chomping at the bit here. All right. Great guitar tone for one. Two, and maybe most importantly, Dan in that chorus singing sort of over himself, multi-tracked a few times, or maybe one of the other guys in, on backing, but that that higher voice of his just yes. triumphantly leading the way. He sounds ecstatic on that. Yeah, it's ecstatic. It's triumphant. It's joy. Uh, man, it, and he's just a wonderful chorus, man. It makes me happy every time. Um, and I think really, you know, Tunison is a great drummer, but man, I, I think Keith Brammer really drives that that song. That that bottom is just oh yeah, moving it so so well. I you know I, I really like um, the looser kind of like rock soloing. Um, I don't know if it's solo or just just kind of filling in. You know, it's yeah. like yeah, it's a, a bit different thing for them on yeah. that record. It's a little more freedom in the guitar work, I think. For sure, for sure. Now the sad thing is this band pretty much collapsed shortly after this album came out or maybe the year later. We didn't get a fifth album. I'll always wonder what might have been. But it, it, in, in some way, it's sort of this perfect end to a perfect evolution. Oh, yeah. I mean, they, they, they never messed up anything. Yeah, well, that's you know, true. They have, a, right. they have this, right. yeah, this inviolate discography that will be preserved forever. 
they did come back. They reunited without Brian. For some reason, Brian sat out. And um, I know that they had attempted to get him in. But the other three guys about five or six, seven years ago reunited, including a roadburn appearance in 2013 that Tom Haley actually went over there for. Apparently, that was a less than a packed venue for them, which was kind of disappointing. But I think you had wanted me to relay some of my experiences in seeing Detroit's in live. Um, and yes. I guess we'll, we'll cap the, uh, the show with this. I saw them on the gone away era and they were playing a few songs from cement as I remember. And this was, as I had learned from tape collectors or people that had seen them before, this is, you know, this is what they did. They would play new songs every time they'd go out on a particular record. They would play new stuff that wasn't even on that new record. Well, the second, the second and final time I saw them was cement and very tellingly, they didn't play anything other than cement songs gone away. Uh, I think a few from century days and I believe man in the trees. And that was kind of weird. And I remember coming out thinking, and also with the sort of lackluster turnout, I was starting to think myself like, is this kind of it? It kind of felt like, and it was a great performance, man. They were fantastic. I was transfixed the whole time. I mean, they were really fantastic. Before that final show too, I met Eric. I had access to the club uh, that they were playing in because my band uh, had played there over the years and um, we just knew the people. So I would just like hang out and if bands were playing that I liked, I'd go check out sound checks or whatever. So I got to see Detroit's and um, sound check a little bit. And Eric was sitting down and um, he gave me like a sticker. I had bought a shirt from him, I think at that, like before the show, you know, before people came in anyway with, with cash of course that's all there was back then paper car- paper currency <laughs> of course so um but he 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 seemed kind of bummed and, and lamented like the smaller crowds that they were getting on that particular tour and i told him yeah you know me and a couple of friends love the new stuff but you know kind of most of the, the iowa city fans I, I i know really don't and i probably shouldn't have said anything that was kind of dumb but because <laughs> Here, here is a kind of possibly depressed musician already. Like I, I kind of felt a little sadness from him. He was really sweet to me, but, uh, but I told him this and then I probably should have said that, but he was just kind of like kind of shrugged his shoulders. like, yeah, you know, he kind of accepted that. After that show, I met up with him again uh, in the downstairs bar and myself and a friend along with um, Eric and uh, Keith, the bass player, we, we had beers with those two guys all night. Really, really cool guys, man. It was so cool to meet them. And they were kind of my new heroes at that point. They were way huger to me in my world than they were in reality. Right. Right. And little did I know, but I kind of suspected that they would collapse and break up, you know, the next year. Now fast forward 21 years later, and I would meet Eric again, not in Iowa city, but in Tilburg, Netherlands. And this time he was with Dan those two guys were over there, uh, I think by the invite of Voivod, because Voivod was there as I was for the Roadburn Festival. Voivod was curating. I had gotten invited to do the Q&A with Snake in a way to kind of moderate that. And after we did the Q&A, Dan and Eric were there. And man, what a thrill. I was like, the picture I have, it's pretty blurry, but I'll try to post it. But it's of me, Dan, Eric, and away. I mean, that's like a high point musical life. Oh, shit. Yeah. <laughs> and, yeah. Then, and then one of the two shows that Voivod did that weekend was a Dimension Hatros in full show. They had never done that before. They played Jack Luminous for the first time ever. And, wow. then, Dan, and then Dan comes on to sing Man in the Trees with them. And like, you know, pinch me, man. This is a fever dream. <laughs> is, is this happening? Like that was, that was so great. Pretty good recollection. From fighting to deep space, man, this band 
forget about it. I, it's going to be hard to top this episode for me because this is one of the most special bands in my world. Same. Absolutely. I got literally like got chills during some of the clips we played. Yeah. And it's just clips. I mean, you know, take, take the album journeys on any of these albums and man, it's just, you know, you, you need a rest afterwards. It's, there's a lot like of, I very well, when we, when we conclude, I'm probably going to cook some dinner. I'm probably going to listen to decroids while I do that. I like that. I like, so yeah, I can't get enough of them for sure. I love yeah. 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 Their music was genuine, man. Every stab of its kind of brain heart mechanism, just totally genuine. Absolutely. So our next episode, um, Jeff and I will be delving into the divisive fifth album by Great Britain's My Dying Bride, uh, 34.788% complete, an album uh, that has drawn ire and praise from, well, probably more ire than praise. Uh, I Um, think so. Yeah, but um, it's an album that we both love. It's a fascinating album, and it's one... um, uh, if if you're an enemy or if you're a friend, I think that you can at least concede uh, that it is album worth discussing. And Jeff and I look forward to leading you through that little journey. And we hope that you'll join us. And take care. And thanks for listening, freaks. Freaks.